Hi, I'm James Verdeer, and welcome to the American Institute of Biological Sciences Bioscience Talks, which is a forum for integrating the life sciences. On the second Wednesday of each month, and sometimes in between, we discuss the latest bioscience publications. And as a reminder, if you'd like to read more, point your browser to academic.oup.com forward slash bioscience. Today's episode is a very special one. We're once again covering the American Society for Gravitational and Space Research's annual meeting. This one was held last fall in Bethesda, Maryland. This is actually the second ASGSR meeting I've had the pleasure of attending. And I encourage everyone to listen to last year's podcast as well, which I'll link to in the show notes. Um, that episode will give you sort of a broader introduction to the organization and the topics covered at the meeting. But for this show, I wanted to dig a little bit deeper into some of the cutting-edge biological and physical sciences research that's being conducted in the space context. Before we get into the interviews I conducted, though, I want to call your attention to ASGSR's 35th annual meeting, which will take place starting on 20th November this year. It's in Denver, and I strongly encourage you to attend if you can possibly get there. Moving on to the interviews, first up is Rob Furl from the University of Florida, who will be a familiar voice from last year's show as well. Uh, in this episode, he updates us on the latest research on the epigenetics of plants in space. I'll let him explain. Thank you very much for joining me, Rob. I was hoping we could talk a little bit about the talk that you gave this morning um, about the epigenetics of plants in space. Absolutely. What can I do for you? Okay, so first of all, let's, let's just uh, let's touch base on epigenetics very broadly. Um, what does that mean? Epigenetics is, uh, well, how best to put this? Broadly speaking, it's the notion that there are genetic phenomena and there are things associated with the genome that are not encoded in the DNA itself, but are regulated by modifications of the DNA. So in a sense, epigenetics is the genetic transfer of information potentially from one generation to the next that does not involve changing the DNA sequence. Epigenomics would be an adaptation of that that says the genome can be modified to affect gene expression or development without changing the sequence. Okay, and I think that's probably the shortest, clear explanation of those topics that I've ever heard. Um, so thank you, and I appreciate your uh, tolerating being put on the spot brutally there by me. Um, so how does this play out in space? What, are, what, what were you looking at and what was being studied? Well, there's a couple of things that, that really beg... Um, answering in the spaceflight business. We, the collective, we have been doing biology in space now for, for decades, and we have used the various tools of genetics and genomics and gene expression to understand the, the physiology that has to be adapted for successful life in space. One of the things that has sort of come back from this whole experience from humans through plants and microbes and fruit flies and everything else is that space is a somehow a dramatically stressful environment. And indeed, even from the human side of things, one of the things that captures attention most is the notion that space is stressful and does some weird and interesting things to people. So too with plants, space is a stressful place to work to be a plant, to grow, to develop. Um, but in the last couple of years, we've really begun to put our brains around the scope of that, that whole point, the degree of stress, the notion that it's a stressful environment. And what I think is happening is we're coming around to the point that, that, excuse me, that space flight is more of a interesting environment to adapt to 
rather than being stressful. And epigenetics, epigenomics, is one of the tools that's helping us contextualize that whole response. Yeah, and in, in the talk you gave, you were describing the effects on, on plants versus other stressors or other things that are traditionally thought of as stressors like salt water. I mean, how does, how does being in space stack up? Oh, that's, a, that's really an excellent question. And, and in my previous comment, I sort of hinted that space was largely considered, often considered, or perhaps to get that grant was considered to be an oddly stressful environment in ways that we would never be able to really understand. Uh, And I think what we are learning after years and years and some really good support from NASA to try to understand what happens to plants in space is that we're learning that adaptation to space is more of a gentle approach to the new environment than it is a dramatic change in the way physiology occurs. Let me give you some context. If you simply measure the number of genes that are changed in a plant root between being on Earth and being in space, you might get a, depending upon the experiment and the hardware and other things like that, you might get a number between 150 and 700. If you put plants under salt stress, you're going to see several thousand genes changed. So that simple comparison there would tell you that, yeah, going to space is a pretty big deal, but it's not as bad a deal as being put in salt water. So too, I really hope you can realize that to do these experiments, just think about it. Plants that are in space and being worked on by astronauts up there are hundreds of miles above the ground, going 17,000 miles an hour, and they're doing so in and out of various parts of the Van Allen belts. No day, no night, none of the typical things that plants see compared to somebody working on the ground. And there's only a few hundred genes being changed that is different. So that, that says to me that even though it is a difficult experimental place to do work, we're still not seeing hugely dramatic responses of plants in space. So you're essentially measuring the, the response of the plants on, by the basis of how many of the genes are changed. Correct. Now, is this changing the same genes as other stressors would change? Oh, that, that too is an excellent question. Um, Spaceflight is novel. There's no genetic predisposition. There's no environmental history that would teach a plant that this is how you should respond to space. Uh, as opposed to, for example, salt, where plants have been in and out of salt water for evolutionary eons and therefore should quote, know the mechanisms that they might have to use in order to get better adapted to salt. So what happens in space? For some of us biologists, this is really the fundamental question. Are the genes that are being turned on in going to space necessarily adaptive? Because how does the plant know what to choose to turn on or turn off? That's one of the reasons why doing genetic studies in space, sending some mutants to space, and acting whether they respond better or worse to space is sort of the next realm of trying to understand whether the responses that we do see are all adaptive to being in space. But the underlying premise is yes, the more genes that it takes to adapt to a certain circumstance, the harder it is to adapt. Right. Now, 
let's talk a little bit, if you don't mind, in the, in the last couple of minutes we have about how this work is conducted. Um, you know, how do you, how do you grow a plant in space? You know, how is that, how is that different? These are presumably at least the first plants that we know about that are in space. So, boy, I wish that were a, there were a simple answer to that question. Um, plants have been grown in space basically since the time of Skylab. The, f the first experiments that were put into space were some rice seedling growth experiments um, in the Skylab era simply to ask whether uh, basically plants would still make roots and shoots and would they grow in space and the answer was, was yes. So that basic parameter of sending seeds into space and then germinating them while there is still the basic way that we do things. Seeds are wonderfully sort of encapsulated biology. They're in their own, you know, time dilation thing inside the seed and they don't, they don't germinate, they don't start growing until you tell them. So many, many of the experiments that we and others do send plants up um, either as seeds that are prepared for germination in the seed tray or in our case on petri plates it would be similar to what we use on earth and then when they are warmed up and given light on orbit they germinate and start living and all of this of course is very good news because it'll um, mean eventually that we could potentially grow food or other plant resources in space oh absolutely one of the one of the joys of one of the fun things of, of being a scientist that interacts with the spaceflight environment is that we do get to interact with, with astronauts. And astronauts have always been keen to work on plants. When they get the chance to work on plants, Peggy Whitson has um, a favorite quote that I'll emulate, I won't get straight, but she says, today I got to work on the soybeans. Not that I had to, or my goodness, somebody made me, but I got to work on the plants today. Because plants smell like earth, they smell like home. Um, the astronauts recently in the last few years got to eat lettuce that was grown in space in the American uh, plant production habitat called veggie. That's a big deal. Ask them, they enjoy being around plants. Plants will also um, provide ready access to things that are um, not stored well in, in, in dried form. And so I do believe plants will play a role in the short-term exploration vehicles, but I'm absolutely convinced that when we do populate the Moon and Mars for long periods of time, plants will be there because agriculture is the way we survive. Great. And that seems like a great place to leave it. Thank you very much for joining me. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me. Next up, I chatted with Samantha McBride, who's the ASGSR student president and a PhD student at MIT. She joined me to discuss the student experience at the ASGSR meeting and also some of the benefits of attending meetings like this one early in one's professional career. I'll let her describe. Samantha, thank you very much for chatting with me. So can you tell us a little bit about some of the work that ASGSR does with students? Sure. So ASGSR has a number of education initiatives. Uh, first of all, they try to bring as many students as possible to these meetings, and they particularly focus on getting high school and middle school students here. So there are a number of different uh, competitions that students can apply for to get an experiment launched into microgravity. 
And so ASGSR supports that and also helps fund travel for the students to come here and present their work at this meeting to professionals. Can you give us an example of you know one of these experiments that made it up into space? Sure, so I know one of the student projects was looking at spider webs in space, uh -huh. seeing if spiders are going to form their webs differently in response to microgravity, and it turns out that they do. Uh, they've also done experiments with mice, um, seeing how they react to the microgravity, and what they find is that similar to how astronauts will play around with microgravity, kind of do the Superman, yeah. uh, after a few days the mice learn to do the same thing and, you know, they kind of have fun with it. You know, can you tell us a little bit about the, you know, the importance of that sort of outreach in trying to, you know, get at and involve students who are in middle school and high school? And yeah, music. absolutely. So I think in a lot of places in this country you think math, science, uh, kind of dull. Yeah. But when you can show kids, look, here's a mouse playing in space, or here's a chemical reaction that's occurring in space, and it's very uh, visually appealing and fun, that makes them say, oh, wow, maybe science isn't as boring as I thought it was. And also, when you have a project like this where they kind of design the concept, and then they launch it to the space station, and they look at the results themselves, it also lets them say, oh, maybe this is something I can do it's not all that complicated, you know, science is accessible. Yeah, I think that's a great point. So, you know, I'm wondering also, how did you, how did you find your way into this role? It's a good question. So I was a master's student working for the PI at Rensselaer Polytechnic, uh -huh. who has a project funded by NASA. Yeah. So most of the NASA PIs, or the university professors funded by NASA, are encouraged to come here to present their work, and the grad students usually come along with them. Uh, so that's how I started going to the ASGSR conferences, and I just absolutely loved seeing all the things going on on the space station and in microgravity, so I just kept coming back. That's great, and you know, and eventually you just, this is a great place for networking and making associations and that sort of thing. Yeah, absolutely, and it's a small community too, so it's easy to kind of get to know the bigwigs yeah. versus some of the conferences I go to with 7,000 scientists, you're not gonna get close to any of the decision right, makers. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, so this kind of gives people an opportunity to get in touch with those that they might not otherwise at a larger conference. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, and so what do you do at your day job? You know, I'm, I'm assuming this isn't your full-time gig. No, it's not, so I am a PhD student. I'm studying mechanical engineering at MIT and my day job is doing research usually on uh, complex fluids uh, drops um, fluid mechanics of drops do you do that in in, in a microgravity setting or is or is that uh... so I don't right now I have um, my main project isn't in microgravity my lab group does have a collaboration with someone working on the space station um, and they presented earlier today but no my main project is actually working just terrestrial normal research. Oh, that's interesting. And it, it does seem like there's a lot of crossover between, you know, those who do experimentation and research, um, you know, in a microgravity setting and also, you know, then perform work that's, you know, earthbound as well. Yeah, absolutely. Our uh, association president, Annalisa Paul, she actually just did a trip to the Antarctic because she studies plants in unusual and extreme environments, whether it's, you know, microgravity on the space station or the Antarctic on Earth. Um, and so there is a lot of ground-based research that ties in with this. Great. So what are the plans for the upcoming year, um, you know, for the Student Association? Is it conducting that um, same contest? Or? Yeah. So the contest is called the Ken Zusa Memorial uh, Spaceflight Contest. And so we will be conducting that again. I think the plan is to try and reach more middle schoolers uh -huh. uh, because a lot of the people who end up applying already have connections to the space field. And we want to really target middle schoolers who maybe don't have connections with scientists already and who've maybe never even thought about doing science or microgravity. 
So we're definitely expanding the outreach efforts. Uh -huh. um, and I think we're also looking at how to reach out more to university students as well. Sure. Because right now there are a lot of high schoolers that are encouraged to come here. There are grad students who come with their PIs. And the undergraduate demographic is missing a little bit more. That's interesting. Now, do the student members, you know, do they receive anything um, in the way of perks or, you know, uh, discounts on their rates for the meeting or for their memberships or anything along those lines? Yes, absolutely. So the student, I'm not sure what exactly they pay. I think it's $35 for this meeting. They're very affordable. Yes, very affordable. And it's actually at a cost to the society. So the amount for like the hotel and the food and everything you get throughout the meeting um, is actually a lot more than what the students pay for registration. Oh, that's great news. And that sounds like excellent outreach. Thank you very much for discussing with me. Yeah, no problem. All right. And next at the meeting, I had a chance to catch up with Mike Roberts, who's the deputy chief scientist at the International Space Station National Laboratory. I'd spoken to him the year before, but now he was in a good spot to give me a little bit of an update on things happening at the National Lab. Dr. Roberts, thank you for joining me. Um, so I was hoping you could tell us a little bit about uh, what's happening with ISS now. You know, we were introduced to the program, the listeners were, um, last year, but what's new? Yeah, since we last talked, uh, we've, we've had a lot happen uh, on the International Space Station. Most recently, and as part of this meeting uh, that we're attending this year, we're rolling out brand new programs uh, with partners from government agencies in addition to NASA. Uh, we Part of our mission on the International Space Station National Lab is to enable access to the space environment for research that directly benefits programs here on Earth. So the National Institutes of Health, who has the responsibility and the portfolio for ensuring health in the United States and here on Earth, has a, a, a wide breadth of, of health-related programs that they enact here on Earth, and we're enabling them to take them to space. One of those active areas of research are tissues on chips. These are where scientists and engineers can get together and try to replicate the functions of tissues and cells uh, in sort of uh, very small uh, chip-based devices. And those devices can enable us as researchers to better understand the way those tissues perform in a state of health or in a state of disease. So we have investigators who are beginning this year uh, launching later this year uh, to take those chips up to space and see how those chips perform in the space environment in the absence of gravity. Have they been up there yet or is that still to come? They're coming now. So we've had some programs, we've had uh, research in the past that has looked at stem cells. So we've looked at individual cells and ways to grow them and culture them and ways to, to uh, interrogate them so we can understand how they're responding to that environment. Uh, investigators have flown bone cells um, and use those as model systems for what happens to our bones, you know, as we experience microgravity. But these will be the first, first time where we've looked at these tissue on chips constructs, which are essentially, you know, they take the approach of build it and they will come. So you assemble on a small chip, a small device where you can pump fluids through and monitor the cells. You create an environment that is in some ways familiar to the cells that would form an organ such as a liver or a kidney or even a brain. Tell me a little bit more about these chips. You know, is, is, this, a, is this chip being used as a, a, are there human cells within the chip? Describe it in relationship, say, to a Petri dish. Sure. Something, something I'm, I am slightly familiar with and our listeners are probably more familiar with than I am. Right, so it's a step above a Petri dish or an Erlenmeyer flask. Um, we do a lot in laboratories where we put cells, we put human cells into a culture environment and we can grow lots of them and we can get lots of good information from them to further our science. The downside of that is cells don't typically find themselves in petri dishes and living in 
culture flasks like that. Right. So we're always striving to, to get more realistic environments in which to put the cells uh, to do that. So tissue on chips are a way to do that and attempt to do that. And obviously we're not quite capable yet of growing whole organs. We can't grow a, a kidney in a Petri dish, but we can grow things that behave a little bit like a kidney or part of a kidney in a Petri dish. But when you start to remove that Petri dish from the equation, when you put it into an environment that more faithfully replicates what's actually going on in an organ that would be inside of a human body, you get better performance from it in that that construct starts to behave more like real kidney cells would when they're in association with others. So your, your research is then more useful because you can, you know, kind of compare it to the human system. Yeah, yeah. It provides opportunities for pharmaceutical companies to then test their drugs against a, a kidney without having to use a rodent model or another animal model. Uh, it enables them to perform tests on human cells that you couldn't perform on a human because you you wouldn't want to expose a human to a potential drug that you know that might have toxic effects but you can do that in these tissue on chip devices now why is that done in the microgravity environment you know you mentioned bones and obviously you know bone density is an issue but are we trying to figure out you know what are the effects of long-term space flight on humans or that's part of it, yeah. Okay. So from, uh, from the NASA community where they're looking at uh, exposing humans to the microgravity environment for long periods of time for those journeys to Mars or Moon and beyond, they need to be able to understand ways that we can effectively repair damaged tissues because you're not always going to have a medical physician with you when you're doing those long journeys. Uh, and in some of those journeys where you're months away from Earth, you're not going to be able to send somebody back to Earth for medical care, like right. we can do with folks on the International Space Station now. So NASA has interest in it from that perspective. But more importantly for the International Space Station National Lab and National Institutes of Health, exposure of these tissue on chip systems to the microgravity environment helps get them a little bit closer to the fluid environment, to the, to the environment that these, these cells would feel or sense inside sure. of the human body. Because one of the things, even here on Earth, if you grow cells in a tissue chip system, at some point the cells are going to come in contact with plastics or other things that are used in the construction of that device. Right. In a microgravity environment, they're essentially free-floating. So this is essentially you're, you're, you're performing the experiment in orbit to make it more like it would be in the human body. Exactly. That's exactly. incredibly interesting. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah and, it, and it's, it's kind of a, it's not an intuitive thing you would think about that no. you could take cells into space and give them an environment with which they're more familiar, but that's the way the physics works out for them. That's great. Now, why don't you tell us a little bit about um, the workshop that preceded this meeting? Yeah, so the, uh, the day before the ASGSR conference began, we had a workshop uh, in partnership between, hosted by NASA and the National Institutes of Health. Uh, we took advantage of uh, our location here in, in Bethesda, Maryland, where the conference is being held. It was an opportunity for investigators from the 27 institutes and centers that formed the National Institutes of Health to hear what NASA was interested in doing in terms of biomedical research in the space environment and in terrestrial facilities. Uh, not all of NASA research is performed off of Earth. There's quite a bit of it that's performed in laboratories and analog facilities here on Earth. And it was an opportunity for NASA scientists and program managers to directly engage with folks at NIH who are developing that biomedical health portfolio. And there's quite a bit of overlap. Some of the questions, as, as you touched on and I touched on earlier, with bone health and muscle wasting, those are things that occur here on Earth that affect us as we age. Our immune systems don't work as well as we begin to age here on Earth as well. 
And those are areas of interest not only to NASA for those long-term voyages, but are also directly at the heart of many of the diseases that occur to us here on Earth. Sure. And obviously, National Institutes of Health has an interest and a lot of research knowledge focused on, on uh, addressing those diseases. So these workshops are an opportunity for two government agencies to get together and talk about commonalities in their research portfolios. And our role at ISS National Lab is helping them get together and utilize the International Space Station to address those research questions. That's fascinating. And what's next for uh, the, you know, the ISS National Lab? You know, um, you've, we've talked about some of the research that's going to be carried out there. Um, you know, how long will this research go on? Uh, I think for infinity, right? That's, infinity, where we're, yeah. that's what we're trying to get to. Uh, <laughs> so the International Space Station obviously has a, a, an end date. At some yeah. point in the future, it's, it's a, a built system, and at some point, the systems that are required to sustain human presence on it are going to begin to fail. Sure. Uh, so like living in an older home, you start to spend more time and resources on repairing things than you have uh, time available to live in it. That's uh, too close to home. Yes. <laughs> We all, we all feel that pain. So the thought is that in the very near future, within five to ten years, there's going to be sufficient interest in research and technology development activities in low Earth orbit that buyers of those services will be looking for other platforms. Mm -hmm. So in addition to the International Space Station, which is slated to stay in operation at least until 2025, and we all believe will go much longer than that, Companies, uh, both here in the United States and, and globally, are developing new platforms. So in addition to China uh, developing and launching a space station, there are commercial companies who have ideas about launching free flyer platforms. So they have the ability to send spacecraft up into orbit for different periods of time. And some of those platforms will not only be focused on tourist activities, not only being able to enable humans to go up and look back at Earth for a short period of time, some of them will be focused on research activities because there are things that you can do in that microgravity environment or tools that you can use for remote, remote Earth observation or tools that you can use to um, further the human exploration of deep space that can only be tested in that low Earth environment. So as we begin to, to move further and learn more about the unique features of that environment, it's becoming more increasingly uh, available and attractive to those from the commercial sector. And some of those companies have identified ways they think that they can afford to do it without the engagement of NASA or other large federal agencies. That's fascinating. We'll look forward to that. Uh, thank you very much for joining me today. Appreciate your time. Thank you. All right, next up, we wanted to bring you a little something from the physical sciences area that ASGSR also encompasses. And I had a chance to chat with Dr. Mark Weislogel of Portland State University. Now, this also required a little bit of time travel because I wasn't able to catch up with him at the meeting itself. But we did talk over the phone just a couple of weeks after the meeting. And I think you'll find this topic very interesting. It's certainly one that is highly important if you are going to be taking human beings along any given journey. The topic is plumbing. I'll let him describe it. Dr. Weisslogel, thank you very much for joining me. Glad to be with you. I was hoping you could tell me a little bit about the talk that you gave about plumbing on, you know, the International Space Station and other, you know, low gravity environments. You know, what are some of the challenges that are faced there that are not ones that, you know, people are familiar with from traditional earthbound plumbing systems? Okay, that's a great question because gravity is in our hearts when it comes to the design of every plumbing system that we have on the ground. You know, not just for toilets and internal plumbing that we think of, we think of plumbing, but plumbing for refrigeration, 
you know, plumbing for air conditioners, those kind of things. So we have this inherent understanding what gravity does to the liquids. It puts the liquids in places we know. But when gravity is gone, liquids accumulate in other places, and that can lead to very significant challenges, even potential disasters. So something as simple as plumbing can be undoing in space if it's not done correctly. Okay, so how would that work? Let's think about a, a like maybe a traditional sink or something. Is it just that you know, I kind of know when I turn off the sink that the water's going to fall back down the pipe. <laughs> What's going on there? Yeah, completely. So the water comes out with pressure, so it's being forced out. But then once it's out of the, once it's out of the tap, gravity takes over and does its thing. And as the liquid falls, the gases that it displaces rise. And so we're very used to that. But in space, if you had anything like that, the jet would come out and would go an extremely long distance, right, before it slows down. It would churn into giant blobs. Those blobs would hit other pipes and include and trap giant-sized bubbles. And those bubbles would go through and stop things from working, like rocket engines, you know, like water uh, processing equipment for, like, urine processing, or even, like, the water system that produces the oxygen, the breathable oxygen on the space station. A simple bubble can actually lock up that system and stop it from, from functioning. And that's a life support system, so that's pretty important to get right on the way to Mars, say. Yeah, it sounds like there's a lot of mission-critical things that you could potentially have go very badly if you ended up with water in the wrong place. That's right. Okay, so you know, how, do, how does that work? How do, what do you do in order to avoid it? What are some of the techniques? Okay, we try all kinds of things. One of them, one of them would just be um, centrifuges. So if we just spin things around, we can put enough acceleration into the system to make it just like on Earth. The problem with that is if you're doing that everywhere, now you're spending all this energy spinning everything up. Things are moving. Things can fail, things are noisy, things are loud, things are torquing. It's just a, it's, uh, eventually it gets, it's too much, it's too complex, it's unreliable. So what, we, what we're trying to do is we're trying to use these passive forces of liquid wetting and surface tension and the container shape to make the liquids wick and move gently and quietly and passively, no moving parts in the right places, and then communicate that to the engineering community so that everybody knows kind of like, hey, where is the gas in the system now? Where are the liquids? If you know that, then you can control and prepare and, and uh, design for uh, possible mis mishaps, as well as uh, function. And these, this is a, that's a powerful contribution. Another thing, too, is if pumps that are already designed fail, at least you have this ability for the system to trickle along and continue to operate while you figure out what's going on. You might be uh, functioning at a, a, less, a lower efficiency or something, but at least it's working and life support systems stay on the go. That's, that's a contribution as well. Absolutely. So you're using physical materials to take advantage of the properties that you know, liquids already have, you know, the surface tension and, and that kind of thing, um, in order to move them through the system. Yeah, that's that's well put. So if you so uh, some of our systems are are too complicated for this conversation, but I mean we did a a simple example was this astronaut coffee cup, where we could replace the the role of gravity with surface tension, wetting, and strange shape to make a cup that an astronaut can drink from, somewhat similar to on the ground. So the astronauts are surprised actually. Hey, the the coffee's going in. You know what's kind of going on, and they adapt very quickly to say, Hey, yes, you can do some of these things. You can. Uh, replace the role of gravity with these, um, these, this physics or fluid physics phenomena. It's called capillary phenomena. That's what we call it. And uh, so the system works. Hey, just, just identically to the ground, basically. And so now that uh, there's a restoration of this, um, I want to say, um, 
intuition for the engineers design systems because you can't just you, you can't just use what you know on the ground in space. It it pretty much won't work. And I most of the time, most of the people I talk to, I know the systems won't work without that exposure to low gravity phenomena with what um which is what is now developing due to research being performed on the space station. And one last question is, how do you perform that research on the space station? You know, uh, it, it sounds like it would be, you know, kind of challenging to get full-scale experiments done up there in that environment. That's right. And so we actually go for the cheap, easy, fast-to-flight ones. So we're, we try to demonstrate this phenomena, show that our, our mathematical models work. And then if, if we get buy-in then from safety engineers and NASA engineers, then we use those models then to predict the real performance of the real systems. So when we actually design the real system, it works the first time with high reliability. I mean, that's, what, that's our target. So we send up these really cheap, fast-to-flight experiments that show this process, and people say, oh, 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 I see. Because it's very straight. It's one thing to see capillary wicking in a, um, a paper towel on Earth, you know, or in a plant or in soils. But it's something else to see wicking across a three-meter diameter fuel tank in space. It's just a, it's just a mind blower. It's, it's not expected. It's not natural. Not normal. Not earthly. Let's say that. Well, that sounds really, really cool, and I'm sure the astronauts are very thankful for their coffee cups. I know why it would be. Um, thank you very much for joining me, Dr. Weisslogel. Okay, very welcome. Very welcome. And last but not least, I want to close out with a conversation I had with Dr. Kasturi Venkateswaran from the NASA Jet Propulsion Laboratory. He joined me to talk about microbiomes in space, which is a topic that's very similar to ones we've talked about a lot on the show, but it has some interesting implications when we bring those microbiomes into the space environment. I'll let him fill in the blanks there, though. So, uh, Venkat, thank you very much for joining me today. Uh, no issue. Please let me know what you want to know about uh, space station microbiome. Okay, so we've talked before on the show um, about the microbiomes of, of you know various places. We've talked about uh, the microbiome of the home. Obviously, if you've paid any attention to the news, you've heard a heck of a lot about gut microbiomes, etc. How does that apply uh, in the International Space Station? Yeah, as you know, the International Space Station is a very closed system. It is a hermetically sealed. There is no football field outside to play. No astronauts go play and bring the soil in. Right. Actually, whatever you take with you, like cargo and human body and other things, you know, that is what is going to be inside the space station. And also inside the, the space station is, uh, you know, one of the best engineering feat where the air of the space station are reutilized. In other words, you know, there is a fantastic environmental control system that purify the air of the space station without bringing anything from outside. So what you breathe actually get purified and bring it back. So basically uh, the microbes and other things will also get purified, but microbes are clever. They know how to evade the system and then sometimes it come back and that may be an issue for the uh, space station uh, dwelling astronauts. So you've got astronauts and they've brought up, you know, whatever bacterial or other species, uh, microorganisms, and these microorganisms are not being completely filtered out by the air processing systems. Uh, it is very tough, you know, uh, because we have HEPA filter system that will take care of uh, most of the things, but some of the things actually evade those kind of process and then come back again. 99% uh, of the things get cleaned up and uh, the rest of the thing, but you get replenished with cargo from the earth. You will be re replenished with the new uh, crew 
So those are going to be there unless you maintain appropriately. The closed system like a hermetically sealed system like space station will build up some unwanted microbes. So it has to be maintained appropriately. What kind of microbes grow up there? Anything what you see in your home office, uh, you know, um, uh, hospital and those kind of things that, uh, you know, persist there mm -hmm. is going to be there. For example, take, you know, good home and bad home. Like, you know, if you are not maintaining right, they actually the microbes may make your home feel sick. Right. So similar thing. So if you are not making your International Space Station maintained appropriately, which um, astronauts are doing it, and that because of that maintenance, you know, it is uh, going better right now. But space station built 20 years back, and if after 20 years from now, you know, unless you are maintaining appropriately, microbes built in. How does that maintenance take shape? You know, is that a, you know, you're scrubbing everything down with Clorox or the equivalent, um, you know, I assume yeah, equivalent, more equivalent to Clorox, it's called uh, BKC. Um, benzyl chloride, mm -hmm. um, so that wipe they are using that is uh, so far is working good in um, cleaning the surfaces and other things. Yeah. But there are so many crevices, so many places where astronauts cannot reach out. And those are the things if it get built up, that's right. a problem. That's why NASA is having this survey uh, in addition to the regular uh, testing, uh, the research-wise, <coughs> NASA is spending some uh, money to look into those things in detail uh, over the period of years to see how the microbial population changes dynamically. So that would help, uh, this kind of research will help NASA to de develop appropriate countermeasure. In other words, the, um, the cleaning wipe that we are using we are also testing whether the microbes withstand those cleaning reagents or not. So anything comes up will be a problem. If it is a normal microbe, mm -hmm. which is required yeah. to keep the healthy environment, you know, we can, you cannot live in a sterile environment. Right. That's not good for your health too. So you have to live and uh, uh, work with the microbes that is not problematic. So how do you, how do you manage that balance then of, you know, Maintaining an environment that contains some of the beneficial or you know benign microbes, um, while still you know managing to remove things like MRSA or et cetera, should that? That's a very that's a very very good question. In other words, uh, um, you cannot live without the microbe. At the same time, you have to take care of the problematic microbes. For example, if you go to the hospital to visit somebody who is sick, who is dear to you, but basically the elders and the childrens, you know, will catch those kind of microbes, otherwise there is opportunistic yes. microbes, right? right? Similar thing, if the astronauts are healthy enough, you know, they can compete with these, you know, opportunistic microbes, which are, which we call opportunistic pathogens, so they can fight for it. But if you are compromised, immunologically compromised, then the problem comes. So your immune system cannot cope up with those kind of things, otherwise it will be benign, right? So. Think about the long travel, long duration. So there, astronaut health might not be as you see in space station, you know, because two years to go to Mars and come back, actually taking the toll out of their health. Yeah. So 
That's why this uh, space station as a test bed that we are using it to measure what kind of microbes are there in a closed system so we understand how to tackle them. Still, we are not there yet. Yeah. So the idea ultimately being to figure out how to build or how to have in this you know, hermetically sealed environment a microbial community um, that is, you know, one in which relatively healthy people or even people who are immunologically compromised uh, don't get sick. Right. And also this kind of uh, survey helps NASA to develop a biosensor. So uh, in such a small uh, closed system that you're traveling, the capsule that you're traveling towards the Mars and beyond, you cannot have a big equipment. You have to develop biosensors, so which is uh, something like a smoke detector. So we don't have a biological detector yet, but this kind of study will help us to understand what kind of things pops up that has to be taken out. In other words, the spikes of certain kind of microbes that we don't want might warn the uh, astronaut that is going beyond uh, space station in on Mars and Moon and Mars can sense with this kind of biosensors and then they will, uh, you know, take a little bit extra care. So they can take some remedial actions so, so that these populations don't rise to a level at which they become dangerous. That's true. That's fascinating. Thank you very much for joining Thanks me. Thanks a lot. And that rounds out our interviews for this year's ASGSR special episode, but we're not quite done yet. Uh, before I leave, I wanted to encourage all of you to consider joining ASGSR and attending this year's meeting in Denver. It's sure to be a good one, and I guarantee you that you will not regret it. Um, and last, I just wanted to close out the episode with some of the sounds from the meeting exhibit hall, where I had a chance to chat with some of the implementation partners who make this science possible. It's a great environment, and it's always fun to talk with those who are developing the cutting-edge technology used in the research that we chat about in the interviews themselves. I hope you enjoyed as much as I did. Can you tell me a little bit about the organization and, and the work that you do? So Zim Technologies, we're an engineering firm out of Cleveland, Ohio. Mm -hmm. uh, we support NASA Glenn Research Center in the uh, physical sciences, which is fluid physics and combustion. Complicated looking electronics they, over there. They really are complicated, right? Yeah. So we, and we do everything from design, the circuit boards, the software, the firm, and the mechanical stuff. Okay. And launch them in, uh, uh, with our partners. How long has the organization been uh, in, in effect? Uh, Zinn's been uh, uh, since 1957. Okay, well, today uh, TechShot celebrates its 30th anniversary. We're here with Airbus and uh, Bartolomeo. So can you tell me a little bit about it? Sure. So Bartolomeo is an external platform uh -huh. to be mounted on the Columbus module of the International Space Station. Yeah, what kind of work is being done on the space station right now? So uh, a lot of combustion science work related to uh, different types of materials and how they burn in space in the absence of gravity. How do you extinguish a fire in a spacecraft uh, for spacecraft fire safety? All that easy stuff, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's, it's the type of thing. So cell culturing systems, tissue engineering, plant growth uh, chambers, um, we're even actually building a 3D biomanufacturing facility for the International Space Station to make human organs and tissues. Oh, cool. Um, and I'm assuming you didn't make the Roku remote. We did not make the Roku remote, we could have. 
I'm standing here in front of a, a desk that says NASA on it, so I'm assuming you're with NASA. I am. Okay, great. Uh, and, and what kind of things are you displaying and talking about here today? So what I'm displaying here is all of the uh, payload racks that we uh, we have uh, on board Space Station. Uh -huh. um, we manage these at Marshall Space Flight Center, and uh, we have several different racks, the express racks. When's it being launched? It is going to be launched October 2019. It's pronounced LIDOS. LIDOS. Mm -hmm. Okay, so tell me a little bit about LIDOS, uh, 60 plus years supporting deep space exploration and human spaceflight. Yes. So LIDOS is um, actually a corporation of two um, other heritage companies, uh -huh. SAIC and the right. um, services portion of Lockheed Martin. Oh, okay. So is the Dream Chaser, that, that, that's the new shuttle, or the Correct. shuttle replacement? Correct. Great. I, I think I remember, you know what, listeners from last year's podcast at the same meeting will remember, I think we were debating whether it looked like an orca or something else. <laughs> <laughs> I'd imagine there's probably a lot of back and forth in that process, too. It's a total communication story yeah. of what do you want to do and right. how can we make it happen. Right. And that's, I mean, is it, obviously it's very challenging. Looks like you make some technology for growing plants in space. Right. We are the division in Madison, Wisconsin. Uh, we have three different disciplines there. One is propulsion and build rocket engines. Uh -huh. uh, the next is the environmental control and life support systems. And then we have our bio side, which is veggie, the plant side, um, which we are now uh, growing plants on space station. I hope you're not going to use that. I'm not going to use that. No, 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 no. no. <laughs> For one, 1988, we started serving researchers in the uh, mainly my, life sciences microgravity research community. Okay. We're flying on the shuttle and now on space station with our, what we say, our picks and shovels. Right. So it's not our research. Sure. We're providing the tools for these folks behind us uh, to do these great things in microgravity. Okay, great.